Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. It is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the more deadly poisons known to man. <laughs> Professor, tell us more about polonium 210. What is it? Ty Webb. Heavy Longmire. Gustave Matéblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Welcome back to Can You Hear Me, a podcast with three guys talking about stuff, except for tonight, I'm afraid you've just got me, Gustave Monteblanc, to spin a little tale for you. Recently, there was a story in the news about Roger Stone, frequent contributor to InfoWars with Alex Jones, and how he may have suffered from polonium poisoning. I was vaguely familiar with polonium, but I wanted to do a little more research, and I thought that I would share that with you tonight. If you will indulge me, this won't be your normal tales of recommendations to cure allergies for strippers, or stories about aquatic mammals scurrying about pastures of North Texas. I'd rather take a page from the book of James Burke, a British alternative historian and documentary maker. He had a series back in the 70s, and I think he's had some other iterations of it in the 80s and maybe 90s called Connections, where he tied together history through inventions and occurrences. So I'd like to give a tip of the hat to Mr. Burke and take us on a journey and learn a little about polonium. First, I'd like to take us back about 10,000 years B.C. in an area in what now is the southeasternmost part of technically Europe, Caucasus Mountains, to where tribesmen from the Fertile Crescent area of Iraq and Iran, sort of the cradle of civilization, migrated north into what we currently call the Northern Caucasus Mountains. And there they basically developed farming and they moved along, basic architecture. And through those years, they pretty much just fought against whoever was trying to fight them. Basically, your hill people and your mountain folk fighting the good fight against anybody that tried to come in and mess with them. And that included Mongols and Persians and what have you, and other tribes in the mountains. And in about 1558, the Carbadians, and I might not be pronouncing that right, I apologize if I'm not to any of our Carbadian listening audience, they sent envoys to Ivan the Terrible, who at the time was becoming the first czar of what we now know as Russia. And the Carbadians, they wanted some help to fight off the Vainakish tribes. So Ivan saw an opportunity, both politically and martially. He married a Carbadian chieftain's daughter. His first wife had died, and so this became his second wife. And by doing so, he cemented his power into the Caucasus Mountains and eventually paved the way for what would be Russian influence in that area. Now, the Vainakish, they weren't having any of it. They didn't want to be uh, subjected to the Carbadians' new ally. They didn't really want to, uh, to play nice with anybody. They wanted their own homelands, and those homelands we now call Chechnya. Now, of course, if you know anything about Russian history, and I'm sure you all know tons about Russian history, right? The Russian Orthodox Church is integral to the power of and the structure of the Russian Empire. In fact, the Tsar was the head of the church, and anybody that's the enemy of the Russians is an enemy of the church by de facto, and many of the Chechens adopted Islam 
as an added form of the resistance against the Russian influence into their region. The enemy of my enemy is my ally. So that's kind of where they headed. And even today, Islam is a very powerful force in the Chechnya of the modern era. Now, the next several hundred years, the land that would become Chechnya, it's controlled by either Russian forces or Russian allies or the Persian Empire. So Persian Empire is what we would now think of as Iran, but they covered a lot more ground back then. And as Russia continued to expand their empire and draw in more territory through a series of wars with Persia, and they would take and give back and forth territory. It's, it's far too much detailed history for this podcast. But through it all, whether you're Russian or Persian, the Chechens were a constant thorn in whoever was in charge's side. So that takes us pretty much up into the 1800s. At this point, the Russian Empire is at its greatest size in the late 19th century, and Chechnya is part of Russia. Now, in 1898, Marie and Pierre Curie are doing an amazing amount of research in Paris, France, primarily in the field of radioactivity. Marie was working on finding additional substances that were naturally radioactive other than uranium, which at the time was what people knew the most about as far as radioactivity. And at the point, radioactivity was brand new. They just figured it out. Marie Curie actually uh, coined the phrase radioactivity. And, of course, she won multiple Nobel Prizes. And one of those Nobel Prizes was for the discovery of an element called polonium. Now, at the time, in 1898, Marie and Pierre, they had been working with an ore called pitchblende. Now, pitchblende contained uranium and predominantly uranium, but there were several other elements within this ore. And in their groundbreaking research for the time, they had discovered that the purified uranium, after they had extracted it from the pitch blend, had a lower amount of radioactivity than the unrefined pitch blend had. When they used their measuring devices, they noticed that the radioactivity level was higher for pitch blend, not so high for the uranium. And they knew that there had to be something more within the pitch blend emitting radioactivity. So they got about 100 grams of pitch blend, which is not that much, put it into a mortar and pestle, and began grinding it up. Now, because radioactivity was a brand new concept, no one had any clue of the detrimental effect that all of this exposure to radioactive material was having on the Curies. Ultimately, it would lead to Madame Curie's death due to long-term effects. But in the short term, we're still grinding along with their mortar and pestle. But 100 grams was not enough. Now, 100 grams, that's approximately about a box of 100 paper clips, to put that in perspective. Not a large amount. They kept working, and ultimately, they would process over a ton of pitch blend in their pursuit of this mysterious element. Through their hard work and dedication to finding what she knew was there, she ultimately discovered polonium. Now, polonium, if for those of you that don't remember your basic chemistry, it's a metal, and it has an atomic number of 84. It's sitting right next to bismuth. It's kind of silvery, if you could find enough of it to actually see it with the naked eye, but it's very rare and highly radioactive isotopes. <laughs> Not a stable element at all. Its most common isotope is polonium-210, but the problem with polonium-210 is it has an incredibly short half-life. Now, the half-life, that's a concept that's the amount of decay of a radioactive element. So if we say that polonium-210 has a half-life of 138 days, that means that, in theory, the probability is that within 138 days, there's exactly half the amount of that material. So as an atom gives off energy by decay, it's firing off alpha particles. Now remember that, alpha particles. We'll be talking about that a little bit later in the podcast. It also is giving off beta particles, 
and gamma rays, with the odd electron thrown out there for good measure. As it throws off these particles, it's emitting energy, and it's decaying. Now, the theory is that uranium, some of it, and other elements are decaying into polonium. And that's why it's always occurring in smaller and smaller doses, but because the uranium's decaying, we're also getting the polonium. Uranium, however, has a half-life in the hundreds of years instead of 183 days. And with a half-life of only 138 days, it's incredibly rare to find this out in nature. Ultimately, when more advanced technology and a greater understanding of the element, scientists figured out how to produce it artificially via neutron radiation. And remember, I said that it sits next to bismuth on the periodic table. It's very similar to it. They take bismuth and put it into a nuclear reactor and pound it with neutrons, and ultimately, they can produce polonium. Now, you're asking, what am I going to use polonium for? This stuff barely lasts. It sounds like it's incredibly hard to create or find. So, how am I ever figuring out enough to do anything with it? Well, the current uses, and there aren't many, the Russians use some of it to heat internal parts of space probes because this tiny little element is giving off heat via radiation. And it's also been used in the past for anti-static devices. But we'll touch on that a little bit later also. So, it's the late 1800s. The Curies are on the cutting edge of science, physics. Meanwhile, Europe is a hotbed of radicalism and potential revolt. And Lenin and his Bolsheviks are working towards the Russian Revolution. But World War I gets in the way for a little while. But in 1917, Lenin grasps the opportunity and overthrows the elected Russian government. The Tsar has already stepped down at this point because the war was going so poorly. And the Russian Civil War erupts. So we talk about the Russian Revolution often. That's in 1917. But the actual Russian Civil War went on for years and years and years. Although primarily, the Bolsheviks had locked down most things by 1921. So in that Russian Civil War, we have two main antagonists. We have the aforementioned Bolsheviks, who were commonly known as the Reds. The other side, commonly known as the Whites. Now, the Whites were not as cohesive a group as the Bolsheviks were. They were basically most everybody other than the Bolsheviks, with the exception of a few splinter groups. So that had us with monarchists, who were all for bringing the Tsar back, capitalists, socialists other than communists, and a host of other groups. Now, there were some other groups that fought both the Reds and the Whites, but they really don't factor into this equation, and ultimately, they were put down. Now, during this upheaval, several nations declared their independence that had formerly been part of the Russian Empire. That includes Georgia, which is due south of Chechnya. We had the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And at this time, the Chechens decided to declare their independence too. And it was actually recognized by several, by several nations in the international community. But during that time, both the Whites and the Reds fought against Chechen separatists. Because... When you've had something, you don't want to let that go, even though you may be fighting somebody else with the other hand at the same time. But eventually, with the fall of the Whites, the Bolsheviks formed the Soviet Union. And in 1921, they launched a full-scale attack and occupation of the northern Caucasus region and formally absorbed it into the Soviet Union. But just because they were absorbed into the Soviet Union that didn't mean that the Chechen resistance was giving up. In fact, they were going to continue on. So in 1941, with the outbreak of war on the Eastern Front between Germany and Russia, the Chechens started making trouble again. After that was settled down and Stalin had pushed further west and secured things, he took his wrath out on the Chechens and deported many of them. And a lot of estimates are that 60% of those deported actually died through one way or the other. It's 
just another chapter in the many, many groups, whether political or ethnic, that suffered Stalin's wrath. Meanwhile, while Stalin's taking out his, his anger on the Chechens, in the United States, polonium was produced as part of the Manhattan Project's Dayton Project. Now, they were using this as part of the bombs. So if you remember, the Manhattan Project generated three bombs. One that they tested, and then the two that they dropped upon Japan. The one that they dropped upon Japan was an implosion-type nuclear weapon. They ultimately dropped a bomb that they nicknamed Batman on Nagasaki in 1945. And polonium was used along with beryllium in what they called an urchin detonator at the center of the bomb's plutonium pit. So you had an orb of plutonium, but inside of it you had this spiked beryllium-polonium urchin inside of it, which ignited the nuclear chain reaction at the moment of prompt criticality to ensure the bomb didn't fizzle away. So the urchin basically made sure it wasn't going to be a dud. It used its own radioactivity to ensure that everything went critical and we had a fission reaction. And obviously it worked. And during this time, in parallel with the development of the bomb, the Manhattan Project, along with the Atomic Energy Commission, were doing some experiments. And these sort of experiments make you stop and think, give a little bit of pause to those crazy conspiracy theories we're always hearing. At the University of Rochester... They actually experimented on five citizens with polonium just to see what would happen. Now, these people were, from what I can tell in the documents that I have found, had terminal illnesses. And they were administered low doses to study how it was excreted and what the effects were. I haven't found detail, but surely they figured out that polonium <laughs> was not good for you. So we know that polonium is dangerous. And we know some people with terminal illnesses had been exposed to it. But I'm not sure that they actually died from it. Because the doses were apparently extremely small. But, based on everything we know, the doses for polonium don't have to be very high. I've seen estimates that a gram of polonium-210 could, in theory, poison 20 million people half of which would die from acute radiation poisoning. I've also seen that number for the same gram at 50 million with 25 million dying. Now, I realize that most of our audience aren't on the metric system, so let me tell you how much a gram is basically. So one gram is about a stick of gum. Not the wrapper in the stick of gum, but just the stick of gum. That would kill a minimum of 10 million people. Let that sink in for a minute. Get your head around that. But the good news is polonium's pretty hard to find, right? And hard to make, since you can't just find it. So how does it kill you? What does it do to you? Well, radiation poison usually has both an acute phase and a long-term phase. So how does polonium-210 affect us? Well... We normally think of radiation, or at least when I think of it, maybe you don't, as gamma radiation. And gamma radiation is what we were all taught to be scared of from a nuclear bomb. And what we're scared of, and we have to wear a lead apron at the dentist, or the x-ray tech has to stand behind a lead wall at the hospital. They're worried about gamma rays. And gamma rays are only stopped by very dense material, such as lead. But alpha particles, which polonium is giving off, they are relatively weak compared to gamma rays. They're very high energy, but they don't travel very far. They can be blocked by just a few sheets of paper. And if they're out in the air, they basically lose most of their energy after you're only traveling a few centimeters, an inch or two. The alpha particles, they're so weak that you basically have to have contact with the body either through ingestion, breathing them, or injecting them, for them to even have any effect on you. Now, I want to clarify one thing, and this is sort of one of those things where we're splitting hairs with semantics. But polonium itself, the true metal, that's not toxic to humans. The radiation from the metal 
That's what gets us. That, al- that pesky alpha particle radiation does a number on cells. It's basically stripping away electrons from anything that comes in contact at the cellular level, busting up our DNA, and just can even cause cellular suicide, put it into a pretty basic term. When it is attacking us, what's it actually doing? Well, the acute radiation sickness usually presents itself first as vomiting. We start to have some bone marrow failure, which forces our red blood cell and white blood cell counts to drop. Now remember, our bones are constantly making red and white blood cells. Red blood cells, of course, carry hemoglobin and process carbon dioxide and our oxygen from our lungs and back out. And the white blood cells are fighting infections. So here I am. I'm poisoned with polonium. I'm vomiting furiously, which of course leads to dehydration and weakness. My bone marrow is starting to fail, so I'm becoming anemic, less ability to carry oxygen, making me weaker, on top of the vomiting. And I'm not able to fight the myriad of infections that surround us constantly. I also start to suffer from hair loss. So we've all seen cancer patients suffering from radiation therapy, causing their hair loss. But then, that, that's bad enough, we're also starting into long-term organ damage. So as this polonium, and whatever minute amount it is, it's traveling through. It gets into the bloodstream, the bloodstream carries it, and it's depositing along the way. We're talking about atoms. Even though this is a micro amount of a substance, there's still millions of atoms in a microgram of polonium. So these are being deposited throughout the body. The liver seems to be an organ where polonium deposits with a higher rate than some of the other tissues. And that makes sense because the, the liver is filtering our blood, removing impurities. But it's also depositing the bones and the lungs. And as time goes, these organs start to fail. And ultimately, once your organs fail everything's just going to go down. Now, from what we know, there's no true, real treatment for polonium poisoning. There has been some research into chelation, which might prove somewhat helpful if the poisoning was discovered early on. Chelation is used to treat poisoning with heavy metals, typically. So, they give you a substance that's basically going to bind those heavy metals, which polonium would be one of, and prevent its absorption. And then once it's absorbed, it's going to get eliminated from the body, in the urine or in the stool. But in what I've read, there's a concern that even that chelation agent might cause increased activity in organs that are already stressed by the radiation effects of the polonium, thus exacerbating any potential organ failure. Kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And for chelation agents to even be effective you would have to get it right away but the problem is as we'll find out later you might not even know that you've been exposed to polonium so up until now we were in the 40s right stalin's put the hurt on the chechens the u.s government's experimenting on citizens knowingly but still and we've just used polonium to drop the second nuclear weapon on nagasaki now, I mentioned earlier that you could make polonium by bombarding bismuth in a nuclear reactor with neutrons. Now, the Soviets, they were big into the nuclear arms race. So were the Americans. Let's not. But the Soviets took it to a new level. They created closed secret cities that weren't on any map where the entire population of the city was just in the business of working on development of nuclear weaponry. So there was one Soviet plant known as Avangard, which was had a polonium production line. So they would bring in material from a nuclear reactor in one of these closed cities, and then they would pr- they would actually produce the p- polonium to a usable form. Now the US and the UK, they had polonium production up until the 70s, but they stopped. And everybody else did too that we know of, with the exception of the Soviets. So it's not like little Jimmy's out in the shed with his chemistry set making polonium. 
There's only a few places this can come from, which factors into our next part of our story. So the year is 1988, and a young officer joins the KGB by the name of Alexander Litvinenko. Now, for you younger folks, the KGB was basically their secret police, both against internal and external enemies. You might be familiar with another KGB officer from that era, one Vladimir Putin, president of the Russian Federation. Now, 1988, when Alexander Litvinenko joined the KGB officially, the USSR was still in full effect, still in an arms race with the United States. And Mikhail Gorbachev is the premier of the Soviets. That was a time of change, perestroika, and things were starting to thaw a little bit. 1991, a KGB commander, Colonel General Vladimir Khrushchev, used the KGB to aid the attempted coup against Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, what do you do when somebody uses something against you? You shut it down. So Gorbachev dissolved the KGB. But you still need all those guys. In the interim, they created the FSK. That's in English would stand for the Federal Counterintelligence Service. And eventually, in 1995, they reorganized that into the current Federal Security Service. Or as it's called in Russia, the FSB. Now in that interim, the Soviet Union fell. The Russian Federation became its own democracy. We'll put air quotes around democracy there. And President Boris Yeltsin came to power. The FSB is mainly responsible for internal security in the Russian state. Counter-espionage against anybody pulling any kind of shenanigans against them. Fighting terrorism. Fighting drug smuggling. And fighting against organized crime. Basically, you've kind of got the equivalent of the FBI, the DEA, Homeland Security, all rolled up into one. There's still some outside work, so to speak, but basically the FSB's mostly focused on internal. A little bit of NSA-like electronic surveillance abroad, but for the most part they're an internal organization. And Litvinenko worked mostly on organized crime. And while he's doing organized crime, there was a very rich Russian named Boris Berezovsky. And there was an assassination attempt on him. And Litvinenko investigated that. And in that process, he got to know Berezovsky, and Berezovsky liked him. So, Alexander started moonlighting on the side for Berezovsky doing security work for him. The FSB, that wasn't really kosher, but because... Times were hard at the time in Russia, and they couldn't pay a really strong salary. They accepted it that that was going to happen, and they just kind of turned a blind eye. Now, Boris Berezovsky is basically one of the richest men in Russia in the 20th century. In the late 90s, his estimated worth was over $3 billion. Now, how did he get so rich since we just had the Soviet Union fall a few years earlier? Well, he's a wheeler-dealer and a shrewd businessman. At first, he made his money off some shady automotive company deals. Then, he diversified and got into the media business, as the official Soviet TV network was no longer around. It had a vacuum that he gladly filled with ORT, which became the main network in Russia at the time. And, of course, Russia is rich in oil and natural gas, and he certainly made a killing off of that. And then he was involved in the privatization of former Soviet industries. Back during the communist era, the national airline Aeroflot, that was totally state-owned. And he had his thumb in the pie on the privatization of that and made a killing off that. But at the time, and maybe even now, Russian business was definitely not on the level. And there was a lot of corruption both on the business side with a lot of mafia and organized crime and actual corruption in the government. The FSB itself, again, these are the equivalent of the FBI, had their own alleged ties with the Russian mafia that it was supposed to be fighting. The Russian mafia were behind the economy of post-communist Russia. 
a lot of money was at play, and you don't come between people and their money. Now, Berezovsky, by standards of Russian mafia, was probably legit, but by American standards, he's a little shady character. He got in close to President Yeltsin's inner circle, especially with his Yeltsin's daughter, and in doing so, he was instrumental in Vladimir Putin's rise from a KGB officer moving up through Yeltsin's hierarchy there. And ultimately, Putin would become head of the FSB. Well, as time went on, higher-ups in the FSB came to Litvinenko and told him to assassinate Berezovsky. Now, Litvinenko balked at the idea and told Berezovsky about it. Berezovsky orchestrated a meeting with Putin for Litvinenko, but at the time, Putin didn't take any public action. So Berezovsky publishes an open letter to Putin calling out the FSB leadership that he believed had ordered the hit on him. So the year's 1998 at this point. Yeltsin's still in power, Putin's over the FSB, and Lit- Litvinenko and a few other FSB officers hold a press conference on Berezovsky's OTR network, which again, most popular network in the Russia at the time, where they claim that FSB leadership ordered them to conduct assassinations and kidnappings on prominent Russian businessmen, including Berezovsky. Now, some of the FSB officers wore hoods, you know, balaclavas, or sunglasses, but Litvinenko did not, which would eventually get him in a lot of hot water. Litvinenko was fired by Putin and ultimately arrested. He was held for nine months in a detainment center, but eventually acquitted. So he's free within Russia, but he's under travel restrictions. Now, during all of this time, the Chechens are not sitting idle. After the USSR disbands, Chechen declares independence and fought a civil war amongst themselves for two years. Well, everything's destabilized. So in 1994, Yeltsin sends in troops for the first Chechen war, which was a total disaster. By all accounts, Russia didn't really accomplish anything. Over 100,000 Chechen casualties by the time the 1996 peace was restored and the Russian troops were removed. Chechen separatists continue to cause trouble. They elect a separatist president in 1997. There's border skirmishes. The FSB decides to assassinate the Chechen separatist president. They weren't successful, but it was obvious that they tried. And nearby neighboring Dagestan, the Islamist Chechens invade that. And again, Russian forces have to come in and push them out. So we've got a hotbed in Chechnya. We've got Putin with FSB ties. By this point, he's actually the prime minister. And there were three apartments. There were three apartment blocks bombed in major Russian cities. Now, the official report blamed Chechen Islamists, but there were people within Russia that didn't believe the official report. And a lot of people were saying that it was FSB operatives conducting a false flag to push Russia into a second Chechen war. So, as I mentioned, Putin goes from FSB head to the prime minister. Yeltsin's still in power, but he's ailing. He's not doing too well. Putin is prime minister goes hard on the Chechens. He's in it to win it this time. And with the civic outrage of Chechen supposed Chechen bombings on Russian soil and his aggressive stance in the Second Chechen War, when Ailing Yeltsin has to step down as president, Putin's easily able to win. And because of the war, his popularity skyrockets. Now, Litvinenko is basically a dissident at this point. He's trapped in Russia, but he knows other dissidents, other journalists. And so he becomes to, begins to write a book, the title eventually of Blowing Up Russia, Terror from Within, with Yuri Falshtinsky. Now, in their book, Blowing Up Russia, they claim the FSB bombed apartment buildings in Russia and blamed Chechen rebels to promote the Second Chechen War and ultimately the ascension of Putin. The book was banned in Russia, and as far as I can tell, is still on the banned list. So, Litvinenko is not helping his cause at all. Several other 
investigative journalists that have clashed with the FSB and Putin have either been attacked or actually killed. So in 2000, Litvinenko makes his way to Istanbul and tried to get exile at the U.S. Embassy but was denied. So he books an, a flight from Istanbul to London to Moscow, a three-legged flight. But when it stops in London, he gets off and asks for a political asylum. And he and his family are granted asylum, according to him, on humanitarian grounds, not political. I've read reports that at the time, he wasn't deemed important enough with his knowledge politically for it to be a political exile. Now, about that time, Putin cracks down in 2001 on the public media, and he comes directly into conflict with Berezovsky. So Berezovsky heads to London to live in exile. And at this point, there's a pretty large group of exiles within London. And during this time, Litvinenko is actually working on a small scale because of his contacts still in Russia with MI6, the British intelligence agency. In addition to working with MI6, Litvinenko was providing information to private firms who were either actively doing business in Russia or who were looking to maybe do future deals, wanted to do their due diligence. And although he'd been acquitted and released in 1999, Litvinenko was put on trial in Russia in absentia and convicted of corruption in 2002. So he's not a popular guy in Russia at this time. And there's obviously people in the government and the FSB that have it out for him. So in 2002, a former colleague warned Litvinenko that the FSB was looking to kill him. But Litvinenko continued to be vocal about the corruption in Russia, the apartment bombings that acted as a catalyst to the Second Chechen War, and an adamant critic of Putin. You remember how we started talking about the trouble that Chechnya had been involved in, one way or another, for over the past 500 years. Litvinenko's pursuit of what he believed to be the truth about the Second Chechen War may well have endangered his life. He also ended up accusing the Russian government of being involved in the hostage situations that were carried out by Chechen rebels. There was a Moscow theater, and then there was also a school where several hundred people in each incident were killed. Over the next several years, Litvinenko continued to cooperate with MI6, work as a journalist focusing on Russian matters, and to be a vocal member of the Russian dissident community in the UK. It was in 2006 Litvinenko began discussing a partnership with a former KGB colleague named Andre Lugovoy. Lugovoy also had an associate named Dmitry Kovtin, who was another former KGB agent. Lugovoy flew from Moscow to London for the first of three trips on October 16, 2006. The three men met together without incident, although... In hindsight, Litvinenko's wife said that he didn't feel well after that first visit. Lugovoy went back to Moscow and then later returned again to London and met with Litvinenko again and then once again went back to Moscow. And it was on November 1st that Lugovoy, Kovtin, and Litvinenko met at the Millennium Hotel in London for tea and drinks. Now, if you've paid much attention, the United Kingdom is full of closed-circuit television cameras. It's very Orwellian how detailed the closed-circuit footage is almost anywhere in a major city in the UK, and London being the shining example of that. So thanks to all this closed-circuit footage, the three men are clearly visible, arriving and leaving the Millennium Hotel. After the meeting, Litvinenko went on about his business, met with other people, and later that night began experiencing heavy vomiting and diarrhea. Over the next two days, his condition worsened, and eventually he was admitted to his local hospital. But his symptoms were so severe that they ultimately transferred him to the intensive care unit of University College Hospital in London. Now, when somebody appears with his symptoms, their first thought was, radiation poisoning, but there wasn't any gamma radiation that they could detect, and that's what you would expect. So the doctors were stumped. So samples were collected and sent to the physicists at the UK's Atomic Weapons Establishment for them to review. 
The scientists started performing gamma radiation spectrometry, but all they found was a small spike outside the range of gamma radiation. Now, I don't know if it's a true story, but one report from the BBC, which is pretty reputable, says that while these physicists that were working on the case were discussing this mysterious spike, another scientist who wasn't involved overheard and something clicked. In the past, he had worked on early nuclear weapons in the early part of his career. Do you remember earlier in our, this episode where we talked about how polonium was used in the urchin core of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki? The nosy physicist remembered a similar spike on spectrometry in his early nuclear weapon work and remembered that that spike correlated to polonium-210. If this story's true, it's basically a fluke where the right person was at the right place at the right time for them to even solve this mystery. It took 19 days for these events to unfold. Meanwhile, Litvinenko is dying before everyone's eyes. He's weak. His hair has fallen out. He is suffering from organ failure. And he is going downhill quickly, wasting away. The alpha radiation inside of him is killing him at a cellular level. Now, as he lay dying, he is surrounded by both medical teams, Scotland Yard investigators, and I would imagine MI6 and MI5 representatives. So after those 19 days, the doctors finally know, or at least have been led to believe, that this is polonium-210 poisoning. Now, most of those guys had never even heard of polonium-210. I know I had never heard of polonium-210 before this case happened. But then again, I'm not a highly esteemed physician in a London hospital, so maybe that's to be expected. Now, if you recall, when we first talked about polonium, that polonium-210 doesn't give off gamma radiation. So they brought in special instruments that were able to detect those alpha particles that polonium-210 does give off. And sure enough, that's what they found. He was full of an alpha-emitting substance. 19 days is all it took. He was poisoned on November 1st, and he passed away on November 20th. But before he died, he issued this statement from his deathbed. This may be the time to say one or two things to the person responsible for my present condition. You may succeed in silencing me, but that silence comes at a price. You've shown yourself to be as barbaric and ruthless as your most hostile critics have claimed. You have shown yourself to have no respect for life, liberty, or any civilized value. You have shown yourself to be unworthy of your office, to be unworthy of the trust of civilized men and women. You may succeed in silencing one man, but the howl of protest from around the world will reverberate, Mr. Putin, in your ears for the rest of your life. May God forgive you for what you have done, not only to me, but to beloved Russia and its people. That's pretty powerful stuff right there. And a clear indication of who Litvinenko believed was responsible for his death, which led to a massive multinational investigation and diplomatic tension between the UK and Russia. While he was dying, Litvinenko gave detailed accounts to Scotland Yard, and there was no question of the identity of the alleged assassins because the dying man had, had given you their names and everything about them. Plus... We had the aforementioned closed-circuit footage to corroborate the account. Now, not surprisingly, both Covton and Lugavoy fled the UK after the November 1st meeting. When the authorities learned of the danger of polonium-210, they backtracked alleged assassins' travel arrangements. And using instruments capable of measuring those alpha particle radiations, they found radioactive trials following the two former KGB agents wherever they went during their London stays and on the planes that they took f to and from London. When they went to the Millennium Hotel bar where Litvinenko was poisoned, they found that the teapot and the teacup was contaminated. Clearly, polonium-210 was put into the teapot. Polonium was in every hotel room that the men stayed in, and at least some of the substance had been poured down the sink, contaminating on a small scale the London water supply. Luckily, 
polonium seems to bond to metal and really be have a high adherence, so it's probably stuck in the sewer pipes of London. So don't worry too much the next time you're over in jolly old England. Now, interestingly enough, reports are that both Lugavoy and Kovtun had to seek medical attention in Moscow in the period shortly after the Litvinenko poisoning. British authorities speculate that it was due to them being exposed to the polonium-210 through sloppy handling of the substance. There's some conjecture that maybe these guys weren't sure exactly what they were working with, that they didn't know how dangerous the polonium-210 was to them. The hotel rooms where they stayed were covered in alpha particle contamination. In some specific places, the contamination was very high. So it appeared that they used a towel to wipe up some of the polonium. It appears that they poured some down the sink, as I mentioned earlier. That They spilled it. Obviously, they were overexposing themselves to one of the most dangerous substances known to man. So that leads some folks to believe that they didn't even know what they actually had working with. Despite extradition request, Moscow would not send Lugovoy nor Kovtun back to the UK. The Russian Federation, including President Putin himself, have denied Russian involvement. And have even gone so far as to suggest that Litvinenko was dealing with polonium himself and was responsible for his own death. We talked earlier about how pretty much everyone, at least officially, except the the Russians, had stopped producing polonium. Apparently, each batch of polonium created in a nuclear reactor has its own physical signature. The UK physicist identified the polonium in Litvinenko's body, upon autopsy, as having come from a Russian production facility. When you take that into account... And then you factor in the rarity of polonium-210, obviously because no one else is making it. And due to the scarcity, because no one else is making it, what polonium-210 would actually be worth on the black market amongst people that would be using it as assassination weapons, all paths lead back to Russian involvement. The Scotland Yard investigation continued on for years, but in a court hearing in 2015... A Scotland Yard lawyer concluded, and this is his quote, The evidence suggests that the only credible explanation is one way or another the Russian state is involved in Litvinenko's murder. Now, obviously, Russia has denied this. They don't accept this finding. You can't physically link them back to it without any doubt, but everything pretty much adds up that this was someone in Russia acting out against Slitvinenko for one reason or the other. Was it due to his original fight against corruption, which drew Putin in, in the FSB? Was it his stand on the possible false flag Chechen separatist apartment bombings that he called out FSB involvement? Or was it something else? Litvinenko was certainly one that was involved in a lot of different accusations. But the trail of bodies since the dissolving of the Soviet Union of any dissident reporters is extensive. There's obviously a pattern there where a Russian reporter standing up against either the state or the mafia is basically filling out his own death sentence. In the case of Litvinenko, that death sentence was delivered via polonium-210. Now, what got me thinking about all of this polonium-210 business, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, was Roger Stone, of InfoWars fame, claiming that he had been poisoned with polonium. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that I have seen footage of Roger Stone speaking to Alex Jones, and he certainly doesn't look like... Poor Litvinenko on his deathbed. So if Roger Stone was poisoned with polonium, I can only hope that it was a incredibly small dose and he only suffers some acute symptoms, not unlike the alleged assassins of Litvinenko suffered. But as a side note, and this is a whole other story, and 
if there's interest here, we could certainly look at it at a later date. Yasser Arafat may have been poisoned with polonium-210 himself. There was debate and some findings, although three different independent labs tested samples and there could not come to an agreement between the three of them about the state of it. But that is another high-profile individual that may have been poisoned with polonium. In addition to polonium, another radioactive element that's been used is thallium. We could talk about that at a later date, too. I appreciate you sticking with me through this. I know it's not our normal, can you hear me? We're trying to mix things up sometimes, give you a little bit of fact, and a little bit of information in amongst our normal hijinks. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at canyouhearmepod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Real Gustav. You can tweet us the podcast at Can You Hear Me Pod. And if you want to talk to old Heavy or Ty, that's old long, at Longmire Heavy or at TyWeb3000. Follow us on Instagram. Get in touch with us on Reddit. We have a subreddit for Can You Hear Me. We have Pinterest. We have Tumblr. So there's a lot of different ways for you to interact with us, and we love it when you do. Next week, we'll be back with an episode, the three of us, and our normal good times. So come back and listen again, and we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. So the result's quite obvious. And what results are those? Whatever he hits, he destroys. World-class championship wrestling. I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Salley. Good night from Dallas, Texas. <laughs>